So good morning. Uh, as Nikolai said, I'm one of the uh, elders, pastors here, and my main role is to teach at Refuge. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, this is a really cool day to be here because we just started um, as a church community one year of reading the Bible. We're calling this year the year of biblical literacy. Uh, we didn't make this up. We're actually following uh, in the pattern of other churches that have done this before us. But um, on January 1st, we began a journey as a church community to read through the whole Bible. And as I said, we're dedicating this year to a year of biblical literacy to read, to study, apply, discuss, and live Scripture. And um, I just want to talk about a few reasons why we're doing this. And then we're just going to talk about why the Bible this morning. Because uh, if you're like me, and I'm going to be very candid this morning, there's problems with the Bible. And they're not just personal problems. There are those, but there are societal problems. Uh, Western society as a whole uh, just looks at the Bible as archaic text that is backwards and is offensive. And, and so not only as an individual, but as we live in Sonoma County, one of the most secular places in the Western Hemisphere, we're going to run into problems when we tell people that we are Bible-reading, Bible-applying, Bible-living Christians. And so I just want to get out in front of that and just talk about the problems of the Bible. And so we're going to do that this morning. So a couple of reasons why we're doing this, and a few disclaimers, and then we'll get into our study. So number one reason, not in list of importance, but literacy among Americans is at uh, a low. Many of you probably know this, but according to a study conducted in late April by the U.S. Department of Education and the National Institute of Literacy, 32 million adults in the U.S. can't read. That's 14% of the population. 21% of adults in the U.S. read below a fifth grade level, and 19% of high school graduates can't read. Now, when you think about the message of the gospel and the story of Jesus come to us in written form. They were written down, compiled in a book we now call the Bible. And these weren't just events based on what was happening at their time. You know, oftentimes we kind of think of the New Testament like that. Like, oh, they were just writing events that were happening, and that's kind of all it is. It's the story of Jesus. Actually, they claim to be a continuation of the story and revelation of the Jewish Bible or scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. All this to say Christians are people of the book. Actually, in the Quran, this is the way Muhammad referred to Christians. He called them the people of the book. They were, they were so connected to the scriptures, that this is a title that they were given, the people of the book. And everybody in that culture would have known who he was talking about. Yet, most Christians have never read through the Bible, or even a whole book of the Bible. Now, this is okay if you haven't read, if you can't read, or if you don't have access to a Bible. Uh, we believe that you can become a Christian without ever reading the Bible yourself. That God is not dependent upon the Bible for salvation. That is a 
thing that happens between a soul and the living God. Regeneration and faith and so on. So some people can't read, don't have access to a Bible, but most of us in the West, we have multiple Bibles. And these days, we tend to get our theology from podcasts, sermons, tweets, Facebook posts. Yeah, that's right. That's what the Bible says, does it? Maybe if we're a bit more studious, we pick up a book on systematic theology or Christian living on a certain subject, which is fine, right? We want to know these subjects. We want to hear from other people that have gone before us and studied these things. But this often leaves us divorced from the story of the Bible, the context and customs, and ultimately the meaning of the Bible. It also can create a lopsidedness to our theology because you end up just picking the things you want to know about, and you're not getting the full spectrum of God's truth. So, as we read through and study the Bible this year, it's going to help us grow just as people. It's going to be a good discipline to read through text that is ancient, that is uh, foreign to us. It isn't, you know, co-authored by J.J. Abrams or, you know, one of our modern storytellers or something like that, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to us. There's a guy named Peter Letart. Am I saying this? I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Uh, but he wrote a book called um, Deep Exegesis. And quickly, he, he talked about how when, um, I believe it was Tyndale, translated the Bible into English that what he did is he did something so fascinating is that he did not try to find English words per se um, to, to understand the Hebrew or the Greek or the Latin, but rather what he did is he had to create new words in English because we didn't even have these concepts. And by doing this, he brought the English language up and he increased the quality of, of, of communication for English speaking. This is incredible. A couple of months back, I had just read this, and I was listening to NPR News, and this interview guy on there that is not a Christian, I doubt he's read the Bible, starts using words like scapegoat, atonement, sacrificial lamb. He's talking politics. All of those words were invented by Tyndale. Those were not words in English. These are biblical words that were created by Tyndall in order that we could better understand the Bible and communicate this. So all that to say, when we read the Bible, when we get into the biblical text, it increases our uh, just quality of life, our, our ability to communicate. It brings us up rather than bringing us down. Do you ever watch a show or read a book and you just feel stupid-er by the end of it? Like, I feel dumb just having watched that. So the Bible will do this for us, just on a practical level, of increasing our depth and understanding our ability to communicate. We will grow in an understanding of the full narrative and grand story of salvation. And by God's grace, we will find our story being caught up, shaped and defined more and more by the biblical story. Now, I, I've said this multiple times before, but the church is now facing a big problem, and that is that a biblically illiterate culture is using the Bible to attack a biblically illiterate church. 
It used to be that people in modern culture saw the Bible as prudish and outdated. Now, modern society sees the Bible as morally reprehensible and dangerous to human rights and human flourishing. The argument goes something like this. If we're going to progress as the human race, we need to get rid of oppressive religions and the religious dogma. Of course, this is a narrative, a way to see the world. We find that the world is actually getting more religious by the day. But all this to say, reading and teaching through the Bible will allow us to cover the major themes as well as the big problems in the Bible. What are the morally reprehensible things that they're talking about? Do we know those things? Do we know the objections that Western society, that Western secularism has to the Bible? We should have answers to these things as followers of Jesus, as witnesses of the kingdom of God, as people of the book. And so as we read through the Bible this year, we will grow in that together. Um, there was a few things I wanted to say, a couple of disclaimers. Oh, yeah, here's one. Um, I'm going to talk about the problem with the Bible this morning. You know what I'm not going to talk about? The answers. So if you have a problem with the problem, keep coming, please. Because I can't cover everything in one study, and you wouldn't want me to. Right? You get super bored, tired, hungry, hangry. Right? We'd be here all day. So we're going to talk about some problems with the Bible. We're not necessarily going to talk about the answers. I kind of want to set the scene this morning. Um, Another thing is, as we read through the Bible this year, this isn't so that you can become a Bible thumper and just increase your knowledge of Scripture. This is so you can grow in Christ-likeness and following Jesus. This is so you can uh, be in deeper community with other Christians. It was really cool. This week I was at Trail House uh, over in Bennett Valley. I was doing some studying, and uh, a friend from the church walked in and said hi, oh, working on your sermon, yeah. And then he just said, man, doesn't Ham get a bad rap? Like, doesn't he get, like, a bum deal? Something like that. And I'm like, yeah, totally. And we started talking about that for a minute. And the funny thing was, it was totally out of context, right? But I knew exactly what he was saying because we had both read that text that morning. And it was just such a cool thing to, have, having not seen him throughout the holidays, to just immediately pick up, we're reading the same text together, we're following the same journey, and it's growing us deeper in our connection with one another. And that is an awesome thing to have as a church community, to read through the Bible together, to be able to discuss these things together. Megan came up to me this morning, and she's like, okay, what happened with Noah and his son. I mean, that's weird stuff, right? Is there more to the text? I think there is. But yeah, it's like we get to discuss this stuff, and, and it's great to discuss that and to get into these things, the nuances of Scripture and questioning these things. But more than anything, church, let's use this year to examine our lives under the Scripture. And we're going to talk about that a little bit at the end of today's teaching. So, without further ado, the problem with the Bible. So, as Christians, we have problems with the Bible, and as I said, I just want to get out in front of that, the elephant in the room. We are uneasy about the Bible. There's stuff for all of us in Scripture that we scratch our heads at, right? Things that most of the time, maybe we try to ignore, maybe we wish weren't in the Bible, and so many of us have no idea what to do with a large portion of Scripture. And this is kind of how I see it. We know Jesus, and we get Jesus, if you know what I mean. We, we get him. Like, okay, I, I understand 
Jesus and, and I see his character and his compassion, his grace. And, and, and we, we come to understand the gospel and the life-changing power of God, his rescue, and it's beautiful to us and, and, and it's a, a attractive to us. We love and believe the vision of the Sermon on the Mount, the teachings and way of Jesus. We're good with Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. But the Bible as a whole seems to be an outdated part of Christianity that most of us are rather embarrassed about. If you're my age, it's like the time that you had a mullet and a fanny pack, right? A proper mullet and a fanny pack. We all know what happened. We just don't want to talk about it, right? That's how the Bible is. It's like, you know, you're talking to somebody about Jesus, and they're like, what about God destroying the whole world with the flood? What about the Bible calling Lot a righteous man when he pimps out his daughters to be raped by the men of Sodom rather than his guests? Is that a righteous man? What about Abraham who pimps out his wife twice because he's scared for his own life? What about these morally reprehensible characters in Scripture. We have problems with the Bible. And the things that most of us, again, we all know what happened. We don't like talking about it. It makes us uncomfortable. So the question is, what do we do with the problems of the Bible? So we're going to talk about a few options, right? So one option is we reform the Bible. We get rid of the Bible. We uh, forget the Bible, right? So Amber Dillon, a writer for the UK newspaper, The Independent, wrote in 2013, so it's a little dated. She says, surprisingly, I don't have a problem with the church. Which is funny, because most of the time you hear people like, I hate the church, I don't have a problem with Jesus, right? No, she doesn't have a problem with the church. She happens to think Christianity and religion in general is something that should be celebrated and cherished. For example, she says, the Christian teaching of true charity, giving, Time and love to people in need, just throwing money at causes, is something that is incredibly important to modern society, she says. Christianity is not the issue. The Bible is. I'm a self-proclaimed theology geek, and so naturally I was excited by the debate surrounding Christianity during the vote for female bishops and gay marriage. This happened in 2013 in the UK, as I said. She said, could this be the start of a new denomination? Will I see another reformation? But I have been disappointed that the issue of the relevance of Christianity in the contemporary world had not been addressed, despite it receiving so much criticism in recent months. I can't help thinking that some of the Bible's teachings are irrelevant to modern-day life, and I feel that it is time for Christianity to move on and that Christians should accept the Bible as a product of its time. She goes on then to mention the book of Leviticus, forbidding the mixing of certain fabrics and the forbidding, uh, yeah, forbidding eating shellfish and other non-kosher uh, foods. Then comments, if Christians accepted the Bible as a product of its time, there would be no more animosity and hate directed at the church because of their controversial beliefs that contradict our progressive society. So Amber Dillon's solution is to simply accept the Bible as a human construct of its time. It lacks little relevance to today's world, she says. Interesting, she's talking about female bishops and gay marriage. 
And to support her argument, she brings up shellfish and mixed fabric laws as her basis for dismissing biblical teachings on sexuality. These are two radically different topics in Scripture. And we're going to talk about all this stuff in the weeks ahead, but it's interesting to me because Amber is reading the Bible a certain way. She's using an interpretive lens, and every one of us do this, and we're going to talk about this probably next week and the week after, but I just want to recognize that that's what's going on here. And she's reading it through the lens of progressive Western society. Listen, she readily accepts charity, love, personal investment in people, but cannot accept other parts based on the fact that they contradict progressive society. So, Bible has to change because society and where society is going says so. And yet, there are certain parts of the Bible that she's just like absolutely gives her stamp of approval. Anyway, very similar to the classic, uh, excuse me, very similar to this argument is the classic Pierce Morgan ob- objection. You guys know this one? In an interview to, uh, with Joel Osteen, said this, shouldn't the scripture be dragged kicking and screaming into the modern age? Classic Pierce Morgan. He says this to almost every Christian he has on his show. He says, I mean, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Not everything in the scriptures really is, in my view, conducive to modern life. I mean, like everything else, doesn't it have to move with the times? And isn't it down again to people like you to interpret in a way that evolves when you're known as a very progressive preacher? Now, Amber Dillon, Pierce Morgan, and many, many others, what they're doing here is what C.S. Lewis referred to, uh, this kind of thinking about one's own time and culture as chronological snobbery. Intellectual superiority to other times and cultures. He says this, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. Lewis goes on to explain what's wrong with this approach. He says, you have to find out why something went out of date. Was it ever refuted? And if so, by whom? Where? And how conclusively? Or did it merely die away as fashions do? If the latter, this tells us nothing about its truth or falsehood. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is also a period and certainly has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions and flaws. They are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares to attack or feels it necessary to do so, defend it. So what's he saying? Every single culture has Blind spots we cannot see. We can't see the whole picture, and it is so arrogant to think that we can look back at cultures in the past and say, well, these people were more ignorant, more gullible, so on and so forth. This answer to just get rid of the Bible does not seem to be a good solution to the problems with the Bible. Again, if we get rid of the problems that we have with the Bible, then we would also have to get rid of the good with it. 
And that's the next thing that we see. Many people suggest cutting up the Bible or cutting out the Bible. You guys probably heard about um, Thomas Jefferson, and I think his Bible consisted of the Sermon on the Mount and a few other Proverbs, because basically he just went through the Bible and cut out everything that was miraculous, controversial to the Enlightenment, or you know just that he didn't like. Right, and so he ends up kind of with a Bible of his own making. It's a very thin Bible. Um, so that's another option: is to get rid of the offensive in the Bible, mainly by getting rid of the Old Testament. Uh, in an interview with Jonathan Merritt, who is a um, I guess he's a more liberal Christian journalist is what he would be. Um, he was interviewing megachurch pastor Andy Stanley from North Point. <clears throat> and Andy Stanley says this, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we get rid of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and we just leave it out of the argument. So we can make a better case for Jesus than the Bible can, is what he's saying. And then in recent years, Andy Stanley has also encouraged getting over the Bible tells me so. The Christians simply obey things because, well, the Bible says so, right? He actually claimed in 2016 that the church veered into trouble. The church gets in trouble when it bases its arguments on the basis of the Bible. He cited deconversion stories in which people told him that they lost their Christian faith when they lost confidence in the Bible. He said, if the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It's all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion. Now, I actually sympathize where Andy Stanley is coming from. And again, Every one of us is reading the Bible in a certain way, with a certain interpretation, a hermeneutic that we have. And there are some people whose understanding of the Bible is so literal, it's mind-boggling. You have to be, in order to be a Christian, in order, you know, whatever you want to say, uh, to be part of God's kingdom, to go to heaven when you die, Right? You have to be a young, flat earth, literal six-day creationist, believe that the sky is a metal dome, and believe the devil put dinosaur bones in the ground in order to thwart the teaching of creation. I'm not kidding. These people have a golden tablet view of biblical inspiration as well. God literally spoke every word of scripture and the human writer simply wrote it down almost like being in a trance. And when you start, though, looking at textual criticism, you go off to the JC, Sonoma State, you go to, uh, you know, UCF or Berkeley or wherever you might go. You start looking at textual criticism and you realize, wait a second, that's not how the Bible was gathered. That's not how it happened. And so you're getting two different narratives here. And you've, been, you've grown up in church. The Bible tells me so. The Bible tells me so. Don't challenge. Don't question. Don't ask. Or else you might be of the way of the wicked, right? And the, there's all this baggage that comes with that. Here's something interesting. My grandfather was a pastor and I believe a very good Bible teacher most of the time. And he was knowledgeable about everything. I could walk through um, a garden with my grandfather and he could tell you every tree 
what kind of tree it was, tell you about the fruit trees. Um, he could tell you about every bird. I mean, this guy just knew tons about life and the world. He was very knowledgeable. But he was taught at a young age and all throughout college that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, period. So when Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth, my grandpa, quote, Moses could write that about himself because he was that meek. When Moses dies on um, Mount Nebo, and the story continues, I think it's in Deuteronomy or Numbers, well, Moses must have known the future, and so he could write about these future events because Moses wrote these five books. Literally, he did it. See, you get into all kinds of trouble when you have this view, and again, it's not an actual, it's not true is the problem. So we make these statements about the Bible that are actually untrue and unhelpful. Andy Stanley is taking a deconstructionist view, isn't everyone these days, right? Which can be very helpful in getting us through dogma, tradition, but oftentimes deconstruction leaves us with chaos and anarchy and only trusting in our own wisdom and understanding to guide us, which leaves us with little meaning, guidance, or purpose. And that's the problem with this view, because if I just cut out what I don't like in the Bible and get rid of it, in the end, I am the one who is the critic and shaper of the Bible, rather than the Bible critiquing and shaping me. I decide what the Bible should and shouldn't say. I judge for myself what is right, wrong, good, beautiful, and true. Question, are you wise enough, mature enough, learned and experienced enough to do that? To take this ancient book that people have studied for multiple millennia and say, I'll tell you what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't. No, you're not, and neither am I. And yet, there are real problems with the Bible. It has horrible things in it. And people have used the Bible to justify terrible things throughout history. Slavery, mass genocide, oppression of women, and sexual minorities. I went to um, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem two years ago. And I, that was my first time going to a Holocaust Museum. And... Um, I am fascinated by World War II, um, by the Holocaust, just this, uh, you know, these atrocities that have happened in, in history are just fascinating to me. And my dad, he is too, so I'm just kind of following in his footsteps. And I think it's really easy to see that as simply a result of secular humanism, right? This is what fascism will lead to. This is why we're capitalist, you know, and like all that kind of stuff. When you walk into... Um, I think it's called Vedashem in Jerusalem. As you walk into the exhibit, the first thing that is on the wall, you know what it is? Augustine being quoted in his hatred of the Jews. Next quote, Martin Luther and his persecution and hatred of the Jews. And it goes on and on and on. And Hitler himself used the Bible to justify his eradication of the Jews. 
He used Christian theologians to justify the wickedness that he did. And people have been doing this throughout history. The Bible has been used to radically oppress people, women, sexual minorities, the Holocaust, the denial of science and true progress, and the list goes on. And you yourself can use the Bible to absolutely destroy someone's life. And many people do. And there are people and practices in the Bible you should never emulate. Eugene Peterson has this little Latin phrase. He says, caveat lector, read with caution. (laughs) Right? We could stamp that across the front of our Bibles. Read with caution. Another problem with the Bible is it doesn't always comment on the character and actions of certain individuals, positively or negatively. So you read the story and you're like, where's the lightning? You know? Like, is this a good guy? Is this a bad guy? Is this a good girl? Is this a bad girl? Like, what is happening here? As I just mentioned, Lot, he's called a righteous man, and yet, what he does. But often, the Bible, the Bible often expects the reader, you and I, to know as they follow the story from the beginning, and to think through and weigh out whether the actions of a certain character or situation align with the good God Scripture reveals, or rather, acts of human rebellion and sin that are out of line with the good creation that God intends. We have the patriarchs practicing polygamy. We have slavery. Uh, You guys just read about um, Hagar, right? She's the slave of Sarah. And it says specifically that Sarah mistreats her. But who doesn't mistreat her? You remember in the story? Who finds her? Yahweh finds her. The God of Abraham finds her. And he says, I see you. And I see the injustice that is happening to you. And I will be with you, and I will protect you, and I will prosper you. There's all sorts of stuff in the Bible that's just terrible. Slavery, incest, rape, oppression of women. Jacob and Rebekah's deceit of Isaac. Jacob's a good guy, right? Judah. <laughs> um, so my, my firstborn son is named Judah. And we did not name him after the character in the Bible. I'm just going to tell you straight up right now, right? The guy who ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law and then, because he thinks she's a prostitute, and then when he finds out she's pregnant, he's like, burn her, right? And then she comes out and she's like, actually, like, this staff and this signet cord, like, proves the man, like, by whom I'm pregnant, I'm I'm missing, I'm I'm leaving out a lot of details. You'll get there and you'll be appalled. (laughs) And he's like, oh, she's more righteous than me. Never mind. Don't burn her. End of story. You're like, what about him? Judah, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. You have the judges, the Levitical priest who chops or gives his wife to be raped all night long. Oh, actually, it's his girlfriend. He won't even marry the woman jerk despicable and then he gives her over to the men of benjamin and they rape her all night long so that she dies and then what does he do well this is unjust so he cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends her to every tribe in israel and then they come and they destroy all the benjamites and these are the people of god so there's problems with the bible just so you know. 
And if you have kids that are challengers and questioners and you're trying to teach them the Bible, God bless you. Good luck to you, my friend. And you know the problems I'm talking about. Quick story. I'm sorry. This morning is filled with stories. But a few months back, my two sons, Jude and Hudson, were wrestling and beating each other up. And Hudson happened to be losing this fight uh, when I intervened. And Hudson was like, it's okay, Dad. Don't worry about me. I've been asking God to give me the Holy Spirit so I can beat Judah up like Samson beat up the Philistines. I, I, okay, I see what you did there. I get why you think that. Let me tell you a story, you know? The Bible is really confusing, super confusing. I'm thankful for um, children Bible authors like Sally Lloyd-Jones who just tells us right off the gate, the Bible is filled with many good people, but they're... They all have problems. They're not heroes in the way that we think of them more. The Bible is really about one hero who comes to rescue all the failures and all the broken. Anyway, so there are problems with the Bible. So let's just talk about maybe some good reasons for reading the Bible or keeping the Bible, not cutting up the Bible, not getting rid of the Bible. So on the other side, the Bible has been used to do some of the greatest good in the world. Healthcare, orphanages, the arts the abolition of slavery, the civil rights movement, women's rights, and so on. Alvin J. Schmidt, one of my favorite books I've ever read, uh, in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, attributes the sanctification of human life, the elevation of sexual morality in the family, really, women's freedom and dignity, charity and compassion, hospitals and health care, education, labor and economic freedom, science, liberty, justice, and human rights, the abolishment of slavery, all to Christianity and Christian teaching. Uh, Tim Keller was recently asked to address uh, Parliament in the UK, and he approached it in this way: What can the Bible offer, or what can sorry, what can Christianity offer the modern world? And he just did a little history lesson with the governing branches of the United Kingdom. And his argument was, if you look at history, everything we cherish in Western society has been given to us by Christianity and the Bible. Not only that, but the Bible is the number one best-selling book in the world. Five billion copies have been sold of the Bible. About a hundred million copies are sold each year. It is banned in certain countries and by certain governments throughout history and still to this day because of how dangerous its teachings, ideas, and messages. I mean, doesn't the American rebel spirit in you want to see what all the hype is about? And again, here's a crazy thing. People of the book, followers of Jesus, we've never read through the Bible. So let's talk about Jesus in the Bible for a minute. We're, we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, those who have received and believed the gospel. A good question is, what did Jesus do with the Bible or the scriptures? Did Jesus dismiss them as irrelevant and outdated? Some people say he did and make that argument. Actually, in fact, Jesus did not do this. Jesus did not unhitch the Old Testament from who he was or what he was doing. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day who prided themselves on their knowledge of Scripture. And he says this, The Father 
who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Hebrews says, many times and in various ways, God has spoken times past by the prophets, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son. John goes on, his voice, the father's voice, you have never heard his form, you have never seen, and you do not have his word, the scripture, abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now listen to this, listen to this indictment. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There's another passage at the end of Luke where Jesus gives the most Christ-centered Bible study ever. He meets two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're distraught because they thought Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. And he was crucified. And they... They can't wrap their minds around what happened. And this is the third day after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And so he meets them on the road, and something's happening there, so they, they don't recognize him. And he's like, why are you sad? They're like, are you the only foreigner in Jerusalem? Don't you know what happened these last days about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed? And how we thought he was Messiah. We thought he was the one to deliver us. And our religious leaders handed him over. And he was crucified. And it's been three days since. And Jesus says this. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus had a biblical hermeneutic as well in a way that he read scripture and understood scripture. He saw himself as the main character and the culmination of the biblical story. It's all ultimately pointing to him. Jesus also constantly quotes the Bible as a divine authority. He said again and again in his teachings, it is written, or have you not read? In all of his teachings, he referred to the divine authority of Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures. We have it in Matthew 5, Matthew 8, Matthew 12, Luke 4, Luke 10, Luke 15, Luke 17, Luke 24, John 5. He quoted the Old Testament 78 times that we know of, right? Because Jesus taught much more than we have recorded in the Gospels. He quotes the Pentateuch, the first five books, 26 times alone. He quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, and Malachi. And the Old Testament uh, Jewish scriptures aren't cut up the way that they are for us. There are actually only really three books in the Old Testament. There's Torah, there's the prophets, and there's the writings. So Jesus quotes from the whole Jewish Bible. Not only that, Jesus was raised in a Jewish household where the scriptures would be taught and discussed day and night, as God told them to in the law. Most Jewish boys could recite the Torah, and the Psalms were the songs and prayers of the nation of Israel. Jesus' life was immersed in the scriptures. Now, here's a beautiful thing that Jesus did with the scriptures. It's believed. It's believed by many Bible commentators and theologians that while Jesus was being crucified, he was reciting the Psalms to himself. And we know that he was, right? This isn't just something that like, people are guesstimating at or whatever. 
Uh, the Gospels record for us Jesus' words from the cross. Do you remember what his first words were? Or that we have recorded? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 31, 5, Jesus' last words from the cross. Do you know what they are? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, verse 5. Could it be that Jesus was using these words in these songs to comfort himself in his darkest hour? Psalm, beginning in Psalm 22, culminating in Psalm 31. Just let me read to you a few of the things that are written in these psalms. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Do you think that might be applicable to what Jesus was experiencing there on the cross? Psalm 24, who is it that can ascend into the holy place of Yahweh? And who is able to stand in that holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, that one will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Scripture tells us that he had done no wrong. There was no deceit in his mouth. He was like the innocent sacrificial lamb. He was pierced for our transgression. And so there on the cross, he's pleading his case. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. Justify me, O God. Psalm 25, in you, Yahweh, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame. And don't let my enemies triumph over me. Psalm 26, justify me. Oh, Yahweh, for I have led a blameless life. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear or be afraid? Psalm 28, to you, Yahweh, I call. You are my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. If you remain silent, I will be like those who go down to the pit. Church, Jesus breathed. He ate. He drank. He lived in the scripture. They were his source of comfort and hope in all situations of life. Remember when Jesus was attacked and tempted by the devil in the wilderness, each time he used the scripture and submitted himself to its authority, he said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus lived by the scripture. They were his daily sustenance. Now, remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about spirit-filled Jesus. We were talking about the humanity of Jesus. So if Jesus the man needs the scripture to guide and direct, to bring him hope and to bring light to his path as he seeks to bring the kingdom of God, how much more do his followers? We should follow in the stead of Jesus. Now, there is a way to read and study scripture that misses the main character and the main point. And we have to be aware Beware of doing this. But just because people have missed the point and misinterpreted the Bible should not keep us from reading and studying the scriptures that ultimately point to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Eat This Book, which I highly recommend to everyone in this room, he says this, Let the reader beware. 
Just having print on the page and knowing how to distinguish nouns from verbs is not enough. I might own a Morocco leather Bible having paid $50 for it, but I don't own the word of God to do with it whatever I want. God is sovereign. The word of God is not my possession. The words printed on the pages of my Bible give witness to the living and active revelation of the God of creation and salvation, the God of love who became the word made flesh in Jesus, and I better not forget it. If in my Bible reading I lose touch with this livingness, if I fail to listen to this living Jesus, submit to this sovereignty, and respond to this love, I become arrogant in my knowing and impersonal in my behavior. An enormous amount of damage is done in the name of Christian living by bad Bible reading. Caveat lector, let the reader beware. So, let's wrap this up. Okay, Char, if that's really your name. I get where you're coming from. The scriptures are ultimately about Jesus and the message of God's great rescue of the world through him. But there are still things in the Bible that seem out of character with that, right? That seem out of character with God. And what Paul tells us in Titus that when the loving kindness and grace of God appeared, not by works which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us and called us with the holy calling. It seems that there are things in the Bible, in the story of the Bible, that are out of line with that character of God, with his grace, with his compassion. So what do we do about that? And this is what I would say. There's a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus starts getting real with the multitudes that are following him. Maybe you've read it before. I mean, he draws a definitive line in the sand and starts saying some uncouth things to a kosher audience, like, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood or you are going to die in the wilderness (laughs) just like your fathers and your mothers did. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not be part of God's kingdom. Very other, or excuse me, also other very offensive language to this crowd Jesus used. And the result was that many who were his disciples, this isn't just a motley you know, crowd, a mob following him for bread, like we often say it is. These were disciples. And it says they turned away from following him. And so Jesus then turns to Peter and the other disciples that we know of, the 12. And he says, are you also going to go away? And this is kind of where I find myself oftentimes. I'll be totally honest. There are many things in the Bible that I still don't understand, that I wrestle with, that I'm working through. I don't have it all figured out, and I'm not sure anyone really does. But for me or you to think that I can, we can dismiss the Bible, cut out portions of it that we don't agree with or have a hard time with is incredibly arrogant, as I said a moment ago. Besides that, if I only read and submit myself to things, people, situations that I agree with 100%, I will grow lopsided and unbalanced. I will be, unstunt, I will be stunted in my mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual maturity. And the claim of our society is we want to flourish We want to grow. We want experience. We want to be well-rounded people. Do we really? Do we? 
then be willing to humble yourself to the scrutiny of Scripture rather than being the judge yourself. If you can do this, you will grow immensely, just as a human being. Also, for me, when I find something in Scripture that seems out of line with the revealed character of God, I fall back on what I do know. And I think what we need to do is we need to use the clear passages of Scripture to help us interpret what is unclear in Scripture. I'll give you an example of this. There's a passage in the New Testament that says that women are to be silent in the church. That they're to have their heads covered. And there are some people that do that and they take a very literal approach to these passages they take um, with this also a very low view of women if you go back to the beginning of the Bible though God lays out where men and women are on the scale doesn't he it says in the beginning he created them what male and female he created them in his image you can look at the, the, the creation of the woman. God takes the woman out of the side of the man, not out of his feet, because she's not lower than him, not out of his head, because she's not above him, but out of his side. They are partners. They are equal in value, dignity, and worth. And we have to read the rest of Scripture with that precedent that's laid down from the beginning. And so we have to take the clear passages of Scripture to interpret and understand the unclear passages of, of, of Scripture. Anyway, that's just one example, and we can talk more about that if you want to afterwards, because I know I didn't explain everything about that. But what I do know is this. Right? I fall back on what I do know. The life, character, person, and work of Jesus are incomparable with any other person in the history of the world. The argument for the accuracy and validity of the Bible itself is greater than Homer's Iliad, the Odyssey, anything we know about Caesar, Mohammed, Napoleon Bonaparte, or George Washington. The Bible is a better document than any of these. That's a side note. But we know the Jesus of Scripture. We know his words, his compassion, his humility, his grace, his sacrifice on the cross. I personally have never heard more powerful life-giving words or ever heard a greater message in my life. And this leads me to say with Peter and the other disciples, Lord, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Frederick Dale Bruner comments on this passage. He says, test the alternative answers to the world's major questions And we, too, will agree with Peter's perfectly put questions and affirmation. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of deep, lasting life, and we have come to believe and so to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so as we read through the Bible this year as a community, and we are challenged, and we see the problems, because they're there, Here's three things I think that we should challenge ourselves to do, and I'll be finished after this. Number one, as you read, think deeply. 
Think deeply. This is not the Hunger Games. Okay, people? You know, and sometimes, like we do, we maybe think too deeply about the Hunger Games, you know? Find ourselves in that story. Think deeply about what you're reading, what it meant to the original recipients, what it means in the grand narrative of the story of the Bible. How does it ultimately point to Jesus? How does it prepare the way for his coming? Think about what it means for your life in following Jesus. So that's number one. Number two, express your doubt. Be honest about the problems in the Bible. Write them down. Come talk to me. Come talk to Nikolai or Max. Get in community and discuss these things. Don't have dishonest doubts because those are proud and cowardly. They show disdain and laziness. What is a dishonest doubt? It's to say, what a crazy idea. That's stupid and just walk away. How dare the Bible say such a thing? Done. Don't do that. That's an assertion, not an argument. Bring your arguments. Uh, It's a way of getting out of hard decisions when we do that. Honest questions are humble because they lead us to ask questions and not just put up walls. So bring your true doubts before God in prayer, before the scripture, before other Christians, before your pastors and leaders. And if you can, like use a little like experience and hindsight, right? And I think we can use this generally with the Bible, but also just with God. You know, we're, we're in process. And the story that you're reading is in process. It's not the end of the story. Genesis leads to Exodus, and Exodus to Numbers, and Numbers to Deuteronomy, and so on and so forth. It's a continuing story that finds its culmination in Jesus. So save your, your you know, final stamp until you finish the story. Wait till then. Use hindsight, right? Look back on the story. So think deeply, express your doubt, and lastly, surrender. We said earlier, if you only take and receive criticism that you already agree with, like, you know... The Bible is your consultant. It's not teaching you anything. It's just affirming what you already knew about yourself and what you already knew about the world and what you already thought, and good for you. You're so wise and progressive. Surrender. Because if you follow any way, if you discipline yourself towards any goal, you will have to give up many things. To be an athlete, to be an artist, to be a doctor to be a good mother, to be a good father, to be a good student. All of these take sacrifice. And so also to follow Jesus, there are things that we will have to give up. But be careful of negotiating the cost rather than counting the cost. As people, we're usually willing to give up things, but we aren't willing to give up the right to decide what those things are. And like Peter and the other disciples, we may not have all the problems solved, the problems of following Jesus, the problems of saying yes to his teaching and his lordship and his saving work. He may confuse us at times. The Bible may baffle us with the things it says and provoke us and offend us. But in the end, our hearts must say something like this to Jesus. This is from Tim Keller. He says, I don't know all that you are going to ask of me, Lord, but I'll do 
what you say in your word, whether I like it or not. And I'll accept it patiently, whatever you send into my life, whether I understand it or not. Because you can't say to Jesus, you are my consultant, I will be happy to take your recommendations, and I might even do some of them. No, if you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Now, that's Jesus. And I would say, also with the Bible, use some give and take. Surrender your ideas. Recognize the fact that you're a Westerner that grew up in California, the most liberal state in the Union. Right? You've been molded and shaped a bit by your culture. Can you set that aside for a little bit and try to enter into the biblical world, try to enter into another culture, another time, other values, ethics, and morals? And by God's grace, we will see our story and the story of Scripture following the same path. Okay, so that's the problem with the Bible, and we're going to talk about more problems and my problems and your problems as we go forward in the next couple weeks. I'm sorry if that was kind of long. It was 10 pages, so good for you guys. Um, So here's what we're going to do. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how we want to be a church that interacts more and more with one another and listens to the Holy Spirit and give place to that. So we're going to worship together, and the Bible says that as the church worships, the Holy Spirit often speaks. And so God might be putting something on your heart uh, that has to do with what was taught this morning, and he wants you to share that with somebody. He wants you to bring a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, a word of exhortation. I encourage you to go to that person and talk to them. If you have a word that you think God is giving you for the whole church, then you can go talk to Max, or you can talk to Nikolai, and they will be there to filter out if that is, like, truly from the Lord, and that's something that would be encouraging to our church, because we want to hear that, uh, if that's what the Lord has for us. Just, I'll say one thing. This isn't the time to get on your soapbox, though. That's not what this is, right? This isn't the time to be like, okay, all my favorite verses, right? Here you go, church, right? My favorite sermon, I'm going to give it now. That's not what this is for. This is a time to simply listen to what God might be saying or speaking, And I believe it's more spontaneous than just, I've been wanting to say this to the church for a long time, here's my chance. Or, well, I want to say something, so I'm going to find something. That's not what this is about, right? Simply, as we worship, we listen to the Spirit. How would you use me to bring comfort, to bring help, to bring encouragement, to bring a word? And maybe I don't actually understand it. It is a word of knowledge. So, all that to say, as we close in worship and communion, we're just going to give some space for that, if that's what the Lord uh, would have us do. And um, yeah, so let's pray and uh, we'll close up. So Lord, <clears throat> I thank you, Lord. It, uh, I, am, I am truly excited and honored to be a pastor uh, at this church and to be a part of this community that is ready to read scripture that's hungry to read this ancient document and to discover Jesus and discover the character of our God and his faithfulness to broken people from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham and Sarah to Lot to Judah 
to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to the judges, to David, to the prophets, and on through to the apostles and prophets in the New Testament, to Deborah, to Miriam, to Martha, to Mary, to Phoebe, or to all these characters, great and small, significant and insignificant, righteous and unrighteous, broken and having their stuff together. Lord, more than anything, would we see your faithfulness and your goodness to bring salvation to a world that is so broken and screwed up. A world that though we might attempt to do good things, or we're also infected with a poison of sin, of self-righteousness, of pride, many times insatiable lust and addiction, brokenness. And Lord, would we see more than anything this year the faithfulness of God to human people. And would we be invited to follow this God, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy. Lord, we expect you to do wonderful, good, new things this year, and we look forward to what those will be. Amen.